so tall, Mark. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Today's reading is Galatians 1:11 through 2:10. It can be found on page 1074 of the Bibles next to your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human source, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go all that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. The word of the Lord. I invite you to join me in prayer. Heavenly God, God who reveals yourself to us in grace, may we meet with you in a way that exposes your grace for us. We ask as we hear these words and as we listen to what they mean for our lives, that it may, it may feel as if you, you are speaking directly into the chaos, the frustrations, the anger, the grief, the joys, the sufferings, the sorrow, the delights of our lives. You're speaking right into it. You know us. You know our journey. 
And you know that we are more of a mess than we care to admit. And yet in Christ, we learn each week here, we hear about the story that even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, in Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. In a world that tells us, you're not broken, you're great, you're wonderful, don't let any negative messages take you down, we live and we anchor our lives in the irony that yes, we are broken, and yet we are loved at the same time. And that, is, that only comes from you. And would you help that grace to transform us as we listen and as we, as we attempt to live in that grace moving forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How do you find your significance? How do you know that you have significance? I, I'm tempted to find my significance right now in this thermostat, that knowing that I'm, I'm in charge of it and I need to keep, it, keep the air on for you guys. There we go. I think it's good. I don't know. Where do you find your significance? How do you know, how do you know in life that you're, that you're not a nobody, but you're a somebody? How do you know that you matter? How do you know that you're not insignificant? How are you doing that? Everybody's, everybody has to figure that out, right? Isn't that a struggle? Isn't that a daily struggle? Maybe it's not a daily struggle. Maybe it just comes up once a week or once a month, but it, a struggle nonetheless. Where do you get your significance? In what basket are you putting your significance eggs? Do you Google yourself? Do you put your name into the Google? Do you do this? Um, I, I actually did this this morning. I put my name into Google and I found out that I am a, um, the current founder and director of Project Bully Buster in Southern California <laughs> and that I am a, a successful media entrepreneur. Um, I've done a lot of great things. So the internet, Mark Holland. Um, there's also, um, why, the reason I wanted to, um, I was actually online thinking about this was there is this true story of someone who Googled their own name. His name is Christopher uh, Viatafa, and he Googles his own name in 2014. He's a 27-year-old Palo Alto man, and he found that he was on the FBI most wanted list, and so he went and turned himself in. <laughs> he found, I have significance. He Googled himself and he found a certain kind of significance. Where's your significance? Where do you find your significance? It's a true story. Well, the Apostle Paul, as he is writing this story, he's, um, as he's writing this letter, he, his significance is being challenged. They're trying to discredit him as a leader. Um, the rug of significance is being actively pulled out from underneath him and people are trying to undermine his credibility and so we, we had that question of the week. How do you discredit a leader? The question of the week last week. There's another question in this week. You can fill that out on that little tear-off card and drop it in the basket. And Somebody last week, I think there was only uh, one answer, and it was, how do you discredit a leader? And someone said, bad leadership. Like, Come on. How, how is a leader discredited? Bad leadership. Like, isn't that like a Captain Obvious answer? <laughs> Does anybody want to claim it? I have, a, I have a name tag here. Captain Obvious. Does anyone want to have the name tag? <laughs> Nobody? Okay. Somebody wrote bad leader. I thought it was really funny. How, do you, how is a leader discredited? Bad leadership. Well, the Apostle Paul is being discredited um, by these people. And just the, 
it, what he does in response is he, he actually, in this, story, in this part of Scripture, he tells his own story. Did you notice that? We're just reading him. The whole part of the, of the letter where he tells his story, it's the, one of the rare times where he does this in a letter, and he's doing it in response to the, the undermining that's happening around him. The undermining is happening, if you were here last week, you caught some of this by some of the folks who had come into the region of Galatia and to these Christian churches and had brought in a little bit of an adjustment to the teaching that Paul had taught them, and they were getting a foothold with this theology, and it was a theology of addition. It was, a, it was, it was like math. It was Jesus plus something. They were under the impression from Paul that the way you find acceptability before God even these Galatian people who are not of the Jewish background, they're Gentiles, you know, traditionally unacceptable in the presence of Jews unless they became Jewish. And Paul comes with this message, you are, through Christ, you are utterly acceptable. There's no Christ plus something, it's through Jesus alone that you find your acceptability before God. But these folks that came in were of the Jewish background and they were bringing in, they were doing what, what we called last week Judaizing making sure you have the Jewish identity markers of circumcision and Sabbath-keeping and various dietary laws. They were essentially saying you can't be entirely sure that you're okay with God unless you put on these identity markers that Jesus himself would have had. And then in the process of that, they were having to, because they would say, well, Paul taught us this, and they began to undermine Paul and, and, and give a picture of Paul as one who really was a, a lower-on-the-totem-pole kind of guy who had his place but really wasn't good in that esteemed kind of caliber with the Jerusalem leaders. So Paul goes in to tell his story. And his story, in telling his story, he's basically saying, okay, you have these issues of these Judaizers, let me tell you my story, and let me tell it to you in a way that shows you the real backstory on these Judaizers. He goes on to, to, tell, to, to tell these things that, you know, some of it were like, well, why is he saying this? Why is he saying that? One of the main things he's doing in telling his stories, or his story, is showing that these people who have come around with his teaching, they're repeat offenders. This isn't, the first, this isn't their first rodeo in terms of coming in and, and stirring things up like this. And he, he shows that his two visits to Jerusalem, and the second one, these, these, same, these same folks were there, and they were stirring things up, and, and nobody... In the Christian camp, nobody in this realm of this new teaching that came out through Jesus, nobody was persuaded by them. And it was a fringe, it was a fringe non-gospel kind of movement. And one of the proofs that he gives is that his own Gentile friend Titus came right into the mix of all these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and no one, even amidst this pressure, no one pressured him to get circumcised. So this was actually a, kind of a linchpin argument in telling in um, showing them that, hey, this, these people that are teaching you things, they have a history. Um, it's like when you get a new job and there's, there's work politics. You hear the story from one person, but then you kind of hear the whole backstory and about. And so you, then you see the story in a different light that this person has told you. Anybody had a thing like that, right? Like, you, so you get these. Little, so he's saying, well, let me tell you a different, little different version of events. So he's doing many, many things, many subtle and important things as he tells his story. But let me just summarize. I can't go into all of them. Let me summarize what he's doing by saying that he's showing how his life has become one in which he embraces grace in his story. Um, Paul is, is telling his story in a way that says, grace has come in 
and it is taken over, and it is at the center of my life. And so it, the question stands before all of us, really, as we think about this. Has that, is that true of you? Can you say that what has changed about you, what is different about you, what is, what, where you're living from is grace? Um, and let's, let's just look at two ways that, he, that we see grace at work in his life. One way is, is what grace does in our lives is that it breaks down your false significance. It breaks down and it eats away at the things in which you're putting your significance that it really don't provide. They don't come through. Paul admits his old method of finding significance right at the beginning of his story. He says, for you have heard my previous way of life in Judaism. So this is the before grace picture right here. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Paul was very religious and in a deadly sort of way. In fact, I have a theory that perhaps this is, that Paul's the reason why people first started saying, um, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. <laughs> because they looked at Paul and they were like, I don't want to be that. Right? You know, we all hear people say that. I think it started here with Paul. I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Violence in the name of his religiosity. So, but listen to, this, listen to the significance that he used to be pursuing. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That's the old way. That's his old significance. That's the before picture where he was endlessly building an edifice of significance. And as he tells his story, I mean, that's just the first couple sentences, and then it's just thrown off to the side. Can you imagine? I mean, these are, these are the most, it, most visibly important accomplishments of his life. He's throwing off to the side, off to the trash heap, decades of work and of advancement and of accomplishment. And as he tells his story now, his story of grace, he flings them to the side. In verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from birth, called me by his grace. And that's where it changed. Paul looks at this, you know, at many in his day, many who he knew would have looked at him and said, oh my goodness, to be like Paul, to, to reach the level of advancement that Paul reached. And he would say, that, yeah, that was, that was before I started living. Let me tell you. All that stuff, all those plaques on the wall, right? All those accomplishments, those trophies, those acknowledgements, those degrees, those promotions, that was before I started living. That was before I found the deep well of grace from which to live. <laughs> the deep joy I now live with. It, it, it asks the question really today, and it forces us to ask the hard question of what are you building your significance on that is, that is not yet representative of a life of joy, of deep well of grace? That's the question, are you building the foundation of your life out of paper mache and it's raining? You ever feel like that? Those moments where, what? It is all, none of this stands up. None of this stands the test of time. I, I feel terrible. I have no significance. And Paul makes a switch. Somehow, 
he makes a switch. In fact, well, really, I know we know how because he tells the story here, but it's told three times in the book of Luke, his story. He's given no choice of that papier-mâché foundation. It is, it is like a bomb goes off from the inside on his false, significant statue in his life. God gets in, and God blows it up and says, I'm going to give you grace as a new foundation. It's funny how that's actually, it's not everybody's story. Not everybody's story is like the Apostle Paul. Maybe you've heard the story, the road to Damascus. He's literally on his way to go do these religious acts and persecute people because they don't follow them. He's persecuting Christians, and out of the blue, God just shows up and blinds him and says, now you will go live this life founded in grace, and you will tell other people about it. You know, not all of us have it actively taken away in one fell swoop like that, but I can guarantee you every single person sitting here at some point in your life, you will feel the crumbling, maybe the explosion or maybe the chipping away of your false, your pseudo-significance that you've been, you've been putting all those eggs in that basket and you will feel it slipping away and it will terrify you. And in many ways, you'll have a choice, and, you, and, and most of us will fight it tooth and nail. And let me tell you, if God is behind that chipping away, good luck. You can, you can keep fighting. You can keep fighting. But at the end of it, you're going to push through. You're going to find that once it's all broken down, a true foundation exists that you never even knew was there. And you couldn't know was there because you were so busy making a false one. That's how grace works. Fascinating that he alludes to this story that happens in Jerusalem where some, some of these Judaizers come up and are trying to stir things up. When you look in the book of Acts at where that story happens in, uh, in Acts chapter 15, Peter stands up at this climactic moment and kind of summarizes where this all needs to go in terms of God's grace. And Peter puts it this way. I love the wording here. I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining the context and all that. Just, just hear the wording. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. I love the language a yoke that neither us nor our ancestors were able to bear. That's exactly what we do. That's exactly what you are doing in many ways in your life right now is you're, you're, you're actively putting a, a huge burden on your back to carry. And the weight of it just bears down. And isn't that why life often feels so painful? It, isn't that often why you're wrestling with the fact that uh, you're exhausted or you're angry or you're unable, you're just unable to bear this. It's a summary of what happens in life without God, a life without grace. Got to do business with our false significance. In fact, I would suggest that, especially if you're, a, if you're a, someone who says, yeah, I'm a Christian. If, you, if you're not actively and regularly doing business with some aspect in your life where you're putting your significance, you're not actively being a Christian. You're, you know, you're not actively living out exactly what it means. Because to be a Christian is to have an anchor, not in yourself, but in the love and grace of God. Dan Allender has a book 
I love the title of it. It's, it's a leadership book, and the title is Leading with a Limp. And he talks about reluctant leadership as the best kind. But anyway, this is his quote. He says, Few operate out of confidence built on anything but the crumbling foundation of arrogance. Few know peace that is not dependent on performance. Few exercise freedom and creativity that are not bound to conventionality. And few possess the capacity to care for people that is not shadowed by either the urge to please others or to knuckle down under the tyrant of should. What's your foundation? Well, let's move to the... I'm only going to have two... We're only looking at two parts of of what grace does in the life of Paul and in all of our lives, really. Let's look at the second. The second is that grace restores your true significance. Grace restores your significance. It breaks down your false significance, but it gives back to you your real significance. It just so happens that I'm also going to read from another one of my favorite leadership books called Leadership from the Inside Out from Wesley Granberg Michelson. He says this, about building our lives on false significance and finding the right one. He says, as long as our identity is vested in what we do, we will forever be vulnerable to the captivity of others' expectations. We will be subject to the rule of our own needs for self-justifying achievement and approval. If our identity remains rooted in accomplishments and satisfying others' expectations, we remain as children, psychologically and spiritually. We work harder and harder to meet external needs because this gives us our self sense of worth. But this never quite succeeds, does it? And in the process, our inner self becomes malnourished, he says. It makes us vulnerable to self-gratification, whether through money, sex, food, or other means of satisfying cravings that can only be met By what? He says, by grace-filled love, acceptance, and care. Closes by saying this, we must nurture our inner self, therefore, not through our outward accomplishments, but by being rooted and grounded in the gracious presence of God's boundless love. Grace restores your true significance. As Paul's telling his story, it starts with grace and ends with grace. As he, as he launches into it, as we said, he tells his before, and then he says in verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace. And then as his grace story uh, kind of blossoms, what does he point to that people see in his life that's significant? Well, he says, James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who are esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. It's the only thing Paul points to. What a transformation. Some of you said, look at what I've done. Look at who I am. How dare you cross me? How dare you threaten me? How dare you, you, know, how dare you not respect me and my significance? That was the old Paul. And now, you know, look at all that I, who I am. Look at how far I've advanced. And now he says, look at the grace given me. Just look at the grace. Grace builds a new foundation. In a sense, he does what all of us are invited to do, is, is make this transition. He goes from spending the limited funds of personal accomplishment and ego 
and aggressively spending those in our lives every day to transitioning to spending the endless reserves of God's grace, the bottomless uh, supply that comes when grace is your new foundation, when God's love, undeserved, is your foundation. And you really can't stop chasing pseudo... I mean, you might have that question, well, like, how do I... Okay, you've alluded to a transition. How do I make this happen? What do I do? How do I... You can't stop chasing pseudo-significance until you've had it replaced by getting your significance, your true created significance, handed back to you from God himself. By uh, seeing the sheer simplicity of how God hands us our significance back, the simplicity of how the gospel works. God saying to us, here, I have your significance for you. You matter, and I will give that back to you. That's how it will work. You will not earn it. You will not do a checklist of things before you're ready. I will hand this back to you right now. All you have to do is receive it. It's a gift. Find out who you are. Find out who you were meant to be. And the tricky thing about it is, I can't, even t- I can't tell you when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. But if you keep looking to God, it will happen. But it's not on your timeline, it's not on my timeline, it's a gift. And gifts are given when the gift giver is ready. Um, let, me just, let me just throw out one more amazing quote by uh, Wesley Granberg Michelson from that book, Leadership from the Inside Out. He speaks exactly to this point of the gift of grace. He says... Despite our responsibility to work towards deep self-awareness, in the Christian tradition, our inner sense of identity and self-definition is not something that we can create. But instead, it is a gift given to us by the Creator. It's a gift. You can pray, you can go to God, you can seek out God. And I haven't known anyone to seek out God and truly invite this gift of significance in who hasn't received it. Because all the work has already been done. The gospel flips the script and says, um, you who have, who have a tendency to run away from God with, um, with the one finger salute up in the air as you run from him, I will chase you down and I will give you your significance back. I will, I will run after you to bring you home. You won't deserve it. You won't come get it. He comes into our world through Jesus. He goes to utter insignificance, rejection, abandon, and he's on the cross, taking the place of us so that we can take the place of God's son, the place of an heir to a throne, the ultimate place of significance. That's the way the gospel talks about what has happened. It's all happened already. It's all yours. It's ready as a gift when you're ready to receive it. And we need it so much, and our, our, our city needs it, and our friends need it. I think about it in just a room like this, how there's thousands of relationships represented. Thousands of people and places that just need more endless, bottomless grace, more love, more graciousness. Each of us really has some terrain or arena in our life that is... is is pretty front burner for us and has a lot of important relationships. 
Maybe it's home, maybe it's work, maybe it's neighborhood. And those are, those are arenas that are in desperate need of grace leaking out. There's people who could, who, who could use more of you, but what's the problem? You are spending your limited resources on hollow significance, on yourself. What would it look like if God would wake you up to his grace like never before? Well, it looks like what happened in Paul's life is that everything shifts and suddenly there's the unlimited reserves of grace get tapped. And grace begins to not only leak, it, leak out in little bits, but get poured out from an endless flow from Jesus himself through you. Are you ready? All we can do is pray for it. Let's pray. Our God of grace, may you give grace and give it in abundance. We may not even realize as we came this morning what we were coming for until now. We pray that you would uh, activate your grace in our lives and make something that can often just feel like a concept, make it flower and blossom and transform into an active uh, work of chemistry in our inner life. Show us in what way the gospel of grace needs to, to sink down in and gain credibility for us. We pray that you, do, you would do this work through your Holy Spirit, through all the mysterious ways in which you work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.